All right, before I get to my next guest, Hal Sutton, I want to give a shout out to our friends at the Ben Hogan Golf Company. When Ben Hogan founded his company in 1953, his mission was to make the finest golf equipment in the world. And that remains their mission today. They forge every club they make to provide the feel and the feedback investment clubs simply can't provide. And their craftsmen micromanufacture each club to your exacting specifications in their Fort Worth, Texas factory. You'll only find Ben Hogan Golf Equipment online at BenHoganGolf.com. Visit them there today to learn about their great products and their great prices. And folks, this segment of the show is sponsored by our friends at the PGA Tour Superstore. This segment of the show is brought to you by the PGA Tour Superstore. See why golfers everywhere are proud to call PGA Tour Superstore their golf pro shop. Visit them online at PGATourSuperstore.com. Now back to Chris and more of the show. All right, now back with me here on Next on the TS 1983 PGA Champion and Player of the Year, Hal Sutton. Let me remind you about Hal's background. He's from Shreveport, Louisiana, played his college golf at Centenary College, where he was named the 1980 College Player of the Year. During his time there, he won 14 tournaments. He was a two-time All-American, and he led Centenary to the NCAA Tournament. He was a two-time Trans-American Athletic Conference Player of the Year. How won the 1980 U.S. Amateur Championship in dominating fashion by defeating Bob Lewis 9-8 and eight in their 36-hole championship match. Turned pro in 1981. Got his first win on the PGA Tour in 1982 at the Walt Disney World Classic in a playoff over Bill Britton. And that year, he was named the Tour's Rookie of the Year. 1983, he was named the PGA Player of the Year after winning the Players' Championship and the PGA Championship. 1998, he won the Tour Championship here in Atlanta in a playoff over B.J. Singh. In 2000, he won the Players' Championship for a second time, this time by one stroke over Tiger Woods, saying probably the most quotable line in golf history, be the right club today. Howe played on four Ryder Cup teams, and he was the captain of the 2004 team. In all, he won 14 times on tour, finished second 18 times. 135 top 10s and 239 top 25. And it's a huge thrill to have him back with me again tonight here on Next on the T. Hey, Hal, thanks for coming back on the show. Hey, Chris, I'm happy to be here. Hal, I wanted to start our time tonight by talking about your Ryder Cup uh, experience and particularly being a captain in 2004. And, and, you know, from everything I've heard, and I got to imagine, there's a heck of a lot more to being captain and making a, you know, four captain's picks now today, filling out a lineup card and then jumping on a golf cart during the tournament and riding around. There's a lot, I'm sure, demands of your time all along the way in that process over the two years in between uh, Ryder Cup uh, events. Talk about what your experience is like as a captain. Uh, well, you know, the first year that you're announced, there's not as much. They do a lot of uh, training you. Uh, they teach you how to uh, answer a question if you don't like what they've asked, how to bridge to another subject. That's one of the things that they uh, spend a lot of time talking about. Uh, but anyway, the second year, there's a lot more to do, uh, especially if you're captain in the United States, because you travel around promoting the Ryder Cup and the different major uh, markets. So uh, there was a lot of travel involved uh, in the second year. Uh, and you're right, there is a lot of responsibility that goes along with it. Uh, 
you know, you're trying to watch the players and see who possible picks would be. And, uh, you know, you're playing out a lot of different scenarios as, as the year continues to progress. Um, anyway, managing clothes, managing, uh, talking about course setup, talking about, uh, you know, different, uh, pairings of people that you know will make the team. Um, many things play out over the course of that year. Along the way, Hal, and particularly as the event gets close, you have players reaching out to you, lobbying you for, for one of the captain's picks? You know, not really. I didn't have a lot of people uh, lobbying to be on the team. Uh, uh, I actually had a few people I wondered if they really wanted to be on the team. Uh, you know, I grew up watching the Ryder Cup and dreaming about being on Ryder Cup teams. And, um, so for me, you know, I watched it all year long whenever I was personally eligible for it. You know, I was trying to make every team that I could. And, uh, you know, it's just the greatest form of competition in my mind. You know, we don't play a lot of match play on uh, in golf at the professional level. And to be able to go play match play golf is fun. And, uh, and pressure packed at the Ryder Cup. And uh, anyway, I always look forward to it myself. Talking about the the pressure, Hal is is the pressure you know talking about it from a from a player standpoint. You uh, being being on the team four times, is the pressure playing in a Ryder Cup different, the same as playing in a major? How what what is that pressure like? Well, it's it's different because you're playing for your country as well. And you're playing for your teammates. And, you know, when you're playing in a major, you're playing for yourself. Um, you know, if you let, if something happens and goes wrong, you hurt no one but yourself. Uh, if something happens in a Ryder Cup, you've hurt your teammates and you've hurt the team effort. And, you know, no one wants to be part of that. You always want to contribute. And, uh, so, you know, there's a lot of pressure that goes along with that. What about as as a captain? Because like you mentioned, when you're a player, you know, at least when you're out there playing, you have some control over what the outcome of the match is going to be as a captain. All you can do pretty much is, is you know, put, put the players in the matchups that you think are going to give them the best opportunity to win. And then you can just watch things unfold. Plus, you've also got the added burden of all of us second guessing everything you do and, and maybe you second guess yourself. But talk about the pressure, what it's like being the captain and dealing with that. Uh, the captain is a is a difficult role because you can't really have any effect on the, I mean, you know, a lot of people say that the pairings have some outcome. I'm not quite sure I'm sold on that. You know, the truth of the matter is if you're playing good, nobody stops you from playing good. And if you're not playing well, well, then it's really hard to find it before a pressure-packed event like the Ryder Cup. And, uh, you know, from a, a captain's standpoint, everybody goes out hopeful, and um, however it's unfolding, you can't do anything about it. You just got to watch it unfold. And, um, you know, in the Ryder Cup, one of the reasons why spectators enjoy it so much is you see people do things that are extraordinary because they want it so bad or, you know, they're in a pressure cooker situation and, you know, they just rise to the occasion. 
and whether it's on the American side or on the European side. I've seen so many shots hold in the Ryder Cup over my course of being a professional that, you know, I was always, I never was surprised because I just saw it all the time. And people rise to the occasion. Did you see people, whether it was guys you were teamed with or part of your team, that you were surprised by in, in some level, like you know, emotionally, they came out of the show because they got so jacked up that they, you know, whether it was a singles or you know in a in a you know two ball or four ball, um, did anyone surprise you with their level of emotion and how they rose to the occasion? Uh, I'd have to think about that for a little bit. You know, uh, you don't see a lot of people uh, become somebody else out there. They remain themselves but you know some inward you know uh david duvall in 99 you know he uh he was a quiet player and and didn't say much but he got pretty enthusiastic about the 99 and justin leonard obviously did as well that uh last nine holes uh um but overall you you don't change personalities in it now, let's talk about pressure in a different way. And and um, we hear guys like, you know, Mr. Nicholas or Tiger talk about loving the pressure, about, you know, that being part of the fun of playing the game. Because when you feel that pressure, it's because you put yourself in a position to win. Did you relish the pressure? Uh, I always enjoyed it because that meant I was in an uncomfortable spot of uh, of attention. And, you know, that's what they're talking about. They're talking about uh, being at the highest level of competition. And today we're going to see who's victorious, you know. And every, like I said before, everybody's hopeful when you get yourself in that position. You're, you, uh, you're trying to be smart and aggressive at the same time. Uh, you're uh, picking where you take risks. And uh, is it the right time? Is it not the right time? You know, and everybody's second guessing too. You know, you mentioned that earlier. You know, we, we got a lot of armchair quarterbacks in the world, and they all got it figured out most of the time. <laughs> so, <laughs> indeed. And how going back to the the '83 PGA Championship, and you know, you win this huge Wanamaker Trophy. And and after all of the interviews and, and everything is over and you go back to where to, wherever it was that you were staying, you you got this trophy in your hand. What what was it like going back to the room and, and putting it down and there it is. I won the Wanamaker trophy. Yeah. Well, you know, you take a lot of pictures with a Wanamaker trophy, but you don't actually get that Wanamaker trophy. They give you something else that's a replica of it that's smaller in scale. And that's actually good because it's easier to travel with. Uh, but, you know, no trophy really represents what happened. Uh, you know, I'm 62 years old now, and I have a trophy room, just like I'm sure all my peers have a trophy room. But you look at the trophies and you think, you know, what does that really mean? You know, if that trophy wasn't sitting there, would I still feel what happened? And the answer to that is, yes, I would. You know, the trophy is more representation to someone else than it is. I have the memory of it. And 
the sense of accomplishment from it. And, you know, I did a dinner for 12 guys here in Houston that were all really good players. Went around the room, talked about what everybody's lowest score was, just period. And then, okay, what's your lowest score in competition? Everybody in the room had shot, you know, even in competition, 66 or less. And, you know, the we, uh, the one thought, the one word, if you had to sum it up, why these people played the game at the highest level is because they love to compete. They're competitors. And that's really what drove me in the game. I wanted to compete, you know, and I didn't need some hardware or something else to remind me that I had won something or I had come out on top at some point, you know, the, the memory of it. So I guess, you know, maybe, maybe this, the answer to this question is nothing, but when I, when I think about um, getting the Wanamaker trophy, and you mentioned you get a replica, maybe a little bit smaller, I, I sort of think of those sort of big trophies, sort of like the Stanley Cup, you know, and we hear all the crazy stories that guys do when they get the, the Stanley Cup and they actually get the Stanley Cup for a day and uh, some of the craziness that goes on with it. Do you, do you do anything with the Wanamaker trophy? Did you? Drive around town with it in the passenger seat. Did you drink a bunch of champagne out of it? Did you have fun with it? Chris, that's been so long ago. I don't remember. To be with you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, my dad was with me at the event. I'll never forget that. I've got a picture hanging up in the trophy room with he and I both holding the Wanamaker trophy up. Uh, you know, what happened from there, I can't really recall. I remember getting up at 3 o'clock in the morning so that I could be on Good Morning America the next day. Oh and I was in Los Angeles and, you know, was in New York. So uh, I'm, I'm not sure I ever went to sleep that night, to be quite honest with you. It was such a big, uh, you know, big win, you know. You can, you're replaying it in your mind. And how I think. Typically, when when somebody wins a major, it's a pretty life changing event. It's a pretty positive, obviously, thing to have happen in your life or to achieve in your life. Um, but when I think back to the things that I've read about you in the early part of your career and kind of some of the expectation, the high expectation that you came out of college with, was was it as as great an event as it should have been, or did did people take a little bit of the joy away because they thought that's what you should have done? Uh, it's funny you ask that question. You know, to me, you know, I work with a lot of kids, and I one of the things that I talk about is to celebrate. You know, there has to be some celebration for accomplishment. And, you know, so many people are driven so hard that, uh, as soon as they've done something, they're moving on to the next thing. And, you know, to me, you have to appreciate the sense of accomplishment. Uh, it, you know, you work so hard to get to a point like that and then to be able to, you know, achieve the victory. You know, to me, I think you have to take a little moment to say, hey, job well done. And, and, and the people around you that love you, they need to help you with that. And, uh, you know, I was pushed so hard that, and not just by my dad, but by the media, because everybody thought I was going to be the next Jack Nicholas. And, you know, if I wasn't living up to their expectations, I was failing, you know, or I was failing them. I wasn't a failure, but I was failing them. And, you know, I think we've talked about this before. Uh, 
I mean, I feel for Jordan Spieth right now because, uh, you know, he's getting a lot of that sort of thing. He's living it in his own life. You know, he's, he's not happy when he's playing golf. You can look at him and tell he's not happy. And, uh, you know, my advice to him is, Hey, pick out who you want to be and work towards that regardless of what the world is doing and saying, uh, you know, I mentioned one time before, you know, that, Somebody wrote in uh, Golf Digest that I'd never do any good at uh, Augusta because I didn't hit it high enough. Well, what did I do? I started working on trying to hit the ball higher. I started trying to become a, a different player when I got to Augusta. I wasn't even who I was because someone else said that's what I needed to do. And, I mean, impressionable, you know. We give too much credit to people that are doing this for a living. Uh, I mean, that aren't doing it for a living. They're just writing about it. and. You know, at 62 years old, I see that now. You know, it's like I wouldn't give anybody credit that that hadn't put the time in that I did. And so anyway. Well, to take that a step further, as you mentioned, Augusta National and trying to change things up. When you look back over your career, were there courses like Augusta National that um, it just didn't, whether it didn't fit your eye, uh, was frustrating and you just you got into it and you're already filled with negative thoughts and think, well, I just can't play this daggum thing. Well, there were, but uh, Augusta was the only one that I really had to go back to all the time because, you know, once you got into Augusta, you wouldn't play Augusta. You know, the rest of the tour, if something didn't fit your eye, you didn't have to go. And, you know, so you ended up playing a lot of golf courses that, that were more suitable to your game. and. You know, but if Augusta says you're in, you go. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Um, when you teed it up at Augusta, were you really trying to do all that stuff different throughout the course of your career? Or did you course correct and say, you know what, that, that strategy is not going to work. I got to go back to being me. Well, I tried to go back to being me, but here's the problem. Once you've gotten a lot of negative vibes at a golf course, uh, sometimes the negativity outweighs uh, any uh, change of course that you might have. Uh, you know, I, I had a lot of, uh, I, I can't say I ever had a lot of good at Augusta. I had way more bad, and it seemed to be in my mind before I got there. And it just followed me around there. So, uh, you know, I, I'm not one of those guys that actually look forward to going to Augusta. Um, so how let's let's talk let's change gears a little let's talk about the players championship and and one of the things that i think most of us marvel at and is not only your be the right club today shot on 18 and, and winning the players championship with that fantastic shot but it's being able to stand up on the 17th tee when you're in the lead and you hit a great shot on that hole from a from a focused perspective how do you block out the the water, the wind, the pressure, and step up and hit it on that green? Well, you know, that's not a terribly hard shot. I mean, we hit that shot millions of times in our life. and uh, You know, 135-yard shot, relatively large green. What makes it a little bit smaller is the fact that it's got the big undulation in the middle. So to get it on the right tier is more important than actually, I mean, it's, most of the time, 
we should be able to hit that green. You know, if the elements got really windy or something, then it really becomes difficult. Or if you're like in 2000 on Saturday, I was in the last group and the green got right. really hard and I hit it a foot too far and it went over the green. I made six. Uh, that happens on that hole. A lot of times good shots don't end up working there. And that's just part, part of golf. You know, I mean, you have to be prepared for, uh, I can't tell you how many times over the course of 25 years out there, you hit a, a good shot and it doesn't work. And that's where you have to be strong inside. You know, you did all you could do. And sometimes situations make you want to control the uncontrollable. And that's where you start to go wrong because you can't control the uncontrollable. And, you know, other people make you want to do that, you know, because they have their, their expectations, you know, and, you know, family members sometimes make you want to do that, control the uncontrollable. But I tell you, I spend a lot of time talking to kids about you cannot control the uncontrollable and don't even try. Right. Right. Hal, just a couple more before I let you go. And I saw a video tip you did a few years ago about how most of us either have too many swing thoughts or our thoughts are all about, you know, the swing backwards. And for you, if things aren't going well, you think about the ball forward. Talk about that. Well, I never was able to play with a backswing thought. And uh, I can practice a backswing thought, but I can't take a backswing thought to the golf course. Uh, I've got to look forward because the target is out in front of me. So I was always able to play much better with a downswing thought, which got me through the ball and thinking about where the ball's going to go. And, um, you know, to me, when I take my focus and put it on where the club head might be in the backswing or something, my mind's eye can't see the pen anymore. And, you know, to me, people that play great, they, their mind's eye never loses sight of where the hole is at. And, you know, you're looking at the ball, but your mind's eye knows where, where you're going. So I always played much better with a downswing thought. Hal, I went out to, uh, to eBay and did a search on your name. And, and one of the things that came up was a, a Hal Sutton Yamaha persimmon driver. You remember those? I do remember those. Yeah, that's going back you a remember? lot of years, Chris. <laughs> no doubt, <laughs> we've come a long way. You know, you remember yes, playing with have. you know that persimmon head to what we got now. Well, the kids don't realize. I mean that. I mean, I've said this many times. Uh, the metal would change the game more than anything else. Uh, back in the days when we were playing persimmon, the best drivers won the most, to be honest with you. And now everybody's a good driver of the ball. And uh, there's no separation, really. The only separation with a driver is how far you can hit it. In the, in the persimmon days, the separation was how straight you could hit it. And because we fought that, none of us really tried to swing hard like the guys are today. I mean, if swinging hard only brought a more uh, left or right shot in the play. And, you know, the object at that point was to get it in the fairway. And now everybody's in the fairway and hitting it 300 and some of them 50 and 60, 70 and 80 yards now with Bryson. 
I also found a a lot of autographed golf balls on eBay, pictures that you've autographed, and there was a pin flag from the 2000 Players Championship that someone's asking $500 for. Does it make you feel good or amazed at all that, you know, whether it's a pin flag or a trading card or a golf ball that, um, because you wrote on it, someone's willing to pay a bunch of money for it? It seems kind of crazy to me, but, uh, you know, I've reached a point in my life, we all do, where, uh, reflection is all we have. And, uh, I reflect back on my career and, you know, I see many things I wish I'd done differently and, and, uh, some things that I think I did about as well as I could do. Uh, but really all I have left to do is to help guide some young people and, uh, chasing their dreams. And, uh, so that's what I enjoy doing. Do you, do you reflect back and, and give yourself the credit that you deserve? Because you've accomplished so much in the game, way more than 99.9% of the people that play it. Do you sit back and reflect and give yourself credit and think, I, I did pretty well here? Uh, you know, I've always been a kind of, I mean, my wife got on to me the other day about, you know, you don't give yourself enough credit. Um, you know, I, my mother used to get on to me about being humble all the time and, um, you know, I, I seldomly think about what my accomplishments were and, uh, maybe I should do a better job of that. Well, I hope you will because you've accomplished so much in the game and you've given so much back to the game and you've given a heck of a lot of enjoyment to so many of us that have been following your career going back to the, the early 1980s. I hope you'll give yourself some credit and allow that to kind of find its way into your heart to know that you've made a big impact and you've made a difference. And you certainly made a difference here on the show. And I can't thank you enough for coming back and doing it a second time. I hope you'll continue to come back because you mean a great deal to me. Well, I appreciate that, Chris. And I always enjoy visiting with you. And uh, you, You've got a lot of good insight on uh, you. You understand the game at a higher level. And you know, it's always fun to visit with people that understand the game. Um, I've spent a lot of years. I mean, I'm 62 and I started playing when I was 11. So I got 51 years invested in this game and I'm still learning, you know, and, you know, I, I kind of get tickled when I talk to a kid that uh, kind of, I got it. I know, I know. And I'm like, mm, no, you don't, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but you will one day. You will. I mean, you know, I, mean, I wish that there were, there I wished I had done it and I wish other kids would do it if they could realize if they could take some advice from somebody that's been there instead of, I mean, they're trying to show you that they're good by saying, I got it, but they really need to understand. No, you don't have it, but you do want it. And this might help you get there quicker. <laughs> so that's right. Well, how let our listeners know how they can stay up to date with you, how they can follow you on social media. Well, it's, uh, uh, we're starting a new uh, indoor facility here in Houston. It's called HalSuttonGolf.com. My email is Hal at HalSuttonGolf.com. So uh, that's the easiest way, probably. So, Well, I can't thank you enough for coming back, like I say, and being a part of the show. I hope I get the privilege of spending some time with you again soon. 
you're a lot of fun and you know, you know, the things that you share and the insights that you provide are fantastic. So I hope you'll come back and share some more with us. All right, Chris. Thanks for having me. Take care, Hal. All the best to you and your family. Thank you. You too. That's a great Hal Sutton, halsuttongolf.com. You can follow him on social media at the same. He's, uh, I tell you, the insights that uh, that you get from Hal and, and kind of getting the opportunity to maybe get inside his brain just a little bit to understand some of the things that he achieved, some of the things he dealt with, some of the things he went through are fantastic. And uh, he means an awful lot to uh, to me and the show. And uh, hopefully we get the opportunity to catch up with him again soon.